The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What happens to a near-death experiencer when the accident that brought on the NDE also does brain damage? Do we rely on our life's memories to rebuild our life on this side of the curtain? And if those memories are gone, how do we cope? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Sharon Levitas was riding a bike to her veterinarian tech graduation party when she was struck by a bus and nearly killed. Forty-five years later, that accident and her resulting NDE still affect her life, for better and for worse, since the accident took away many of her memories of her pre-accident life. Sharon is living proof that an understanding approach to near-death experiencers can save them from doctors who would prescribe unnecessary, confusing, and harmful drugs, and even from their uh, committing the NDE or to a psychiatric hospital. About her accident and NDE, Sharon writes, I will always feel I'm between both worlds. I feel I'm always looking in at the world instead of being a part of it. I feel like I'm a caretaker to many. I'm always there. Life after has always been very hard for me since my NDE. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with missing so much of my childhood being erased from my memory. I feel I was given a special gift and I'm here for a reason. I love who I am, but at the same time, I ask God at times, what is my purpose? What did you want me back for? He has the answers, and deep down, I know I have them too. Sharon, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. Thank you for having me. And it's like, <laughs> I, I just hope I don't break, you know. I, you know, it's, it's something i never really done before is, you know, come out in the open with this to other near-death experienced people. And it was like I always had to stay hushed because it was something over everybody's head. Well, that's uh, that's one of the reasons we have this radio show is to uh, to open up this uh, uh, possibility so that people can understand it's something that really needs to be talked about. Tell us I, about how the tell us about how your accident happened and and uh, about everything you remember about what you experienced during your NDE. Okay. Um, I just graduated a veterinary technology school, and I was to go to my graduation party. And when I went to get my car, it was stolen. So my girlfriend and I decided to take our bicycles to get there. Hmm. And and that's all I know. And then I I got hit by a bus that you know I have no reconciliation of of being in any accident whatsoever. But I hmm. saw my body in the street laying there as I was rising and choking up as I was rising up you know feeling yes. so much peace until I disappeared um, my whole life like played fast forward to me from day one up until you know um, uh, I mean that's just about about it and then um, it was like several months later <laughs> Or a few months later, that I was actually able to comprehend, I was ran over, you know, by a bus. <laughs> right. Now it's it's interesting that you had a a life review. You saw your whole life up to that point, but when you came back, you couldn't remember 
that those early memories, your childhood memories? Is were erased during that time, or um, you know, so so know. the brain the brain that held those your brain, which held the, the part of your brain that held those memories, was damaged, but the soul that had the life review. Uh, obviously is not it. It's, it's, you know, somewhere in, in your soul, those memories still exist. Little bits and pieces, like I have a younger brother who mm-hmm. can't remember being in, in the home at all from this day on, you know. But yet, I know when he was young, he broke his leg, and that I remember. Yes. It's just like little bits. It's like, I guess, things that were important to me somehow. I don't know. Now, you mentioned in a conversation we had that you had uh, you were raised Jewish, but you had this yes. feeling that the that Jesus disciples were surrounding you during mm-hmm. your NDE. Of right. course, and, you, I, and I had talks with God. I know because I was thanking Him, mm-hmm. um, and um, and I was told I was I was to, you know I was back for a reason. But I, you know, I couldn't tell you what that reason, you know, is anymore. It's like so much that I knew, I don't know. It's like, I don't know, maybe if I was put under hypnosis or something, you know, I might know or I might not know. Maybe I'm not to know, you know. Might might bring some of that back, yeah. Um, So they took you to the hospital, obviously, and from what you told me, you were a pretty cantankerous patient. You were running out in the parking lot with uh, nothing on and that sort of thing? Actually, I was taken to two different hospitals. Okay. Okay, the first hospital I was taken to was a Jane Doe. And I have, you know, no knowledge of what happened there or if I was in a coma or if I was unconscious or anything. Mm. Whenever I asked about it, they just said, you don't need to know, you know type thing, you know, it was like, were they trying to protect me, or, or they, or it hurt them too much to talk about it, you know? Yeah, yes. And then, and then when I was transferred to the other hospital that my mom had me transferred to, that's when I, um, sort of took on personalities of patients that I had. I worked in a hospital, a convalescent hospital, at the time of my accident, mm-hmm. and, um, and what they told me how I was behaving was exactly like some of my patients that were my patients. So I, somehow I was taken over them as if they were me. I wonder if in the absence of your own memories, you were taking on, uh, trying to take on somebody else's memories, people that you had worked with and people that, you know, had been your patients. I, I don't know. I, I don't see. I don't have any reconciliation being in a hospital at all, or being in an accident at all. Right. You don't. Um, you don't remember that. Not at all. All this information I'm giving you is just what I was told. Mm-hmm. And um, and you've you've also, uh, as a result, probably or or possibly of the NDE, you've you've received some gifts as well. You've had experiences that were uh, a prophetic. And um, t- tell us about that watch that uh, that gave you a warning. Yeah, um, I had my grandmother's watch on, and um, 
And suddenly it started going 10 minutes fast, every five minutes. And I had this feeling over me that my grandmother was trying to tell me not to go home, that something was going to happen bad. And I told my therapist that, and, you know, they, you know, they never want to believe anything, you know, you know what you're going to tell them. So um, <laughs> I went home, and sure enough, uh, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there were three guys at the door. One had a gun, one had nunchucks, and one had a knife. And they pushed the door open, and they pulled out the phone, I don't know, phone wire from the wall. It was They didn't have the, the cable-type wires that was connected inside the wall at that time. And they yes. yanked it out of the wall, and I got tied up with that cord, and, and they ransacked the whole house. And I sat there very calmly, scared to death, but sat there very calmly on the outside. And, and it was about an hour later that another one of my roommates came home, and they got him tied up, too. Mm. And we were both sitting there tied up. But I almost felt safer in a way, knowing I wasn't alone. <laughs> yes, know? of course. And then um, a little while later, another one of our roommates, you know, got home, and we got untied. They were already gone by then. And and I'll just know that I just called my therapist, and I said, I told you, you know. <laughs> 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 I mean, because, you know, I was never believed anything that that I knew was going to happen, or and everything always did happen that I knew was going to happen, but, you know, they they just kind of, you know, shine it on type thing in a way, I guess. And, yeah, and, and, uh, so and I ended up moving out of there the very next day. My brother came with his truck and took me away. <laughs> yeah. But you said the uh, your watch worked uh, just fine yeah, after it went that. Huh? Normal after that. Isn't that interesting? Well, some mm-hmm. people who've had NDEs also have a an electrical uh, effect or an electromagnetic effect on various things like watches. But that must mm-hmm. have been your own your own. Um, uh, foreboding, you know, the a prophetic warning that was coming to you that you were going to be in trouble when you went home. And then there's an, a really neat story you told me about uh, the man who uh, was dying in the supermarket. Maybe you could tell us that story. Yeah, I was in Ralph's supermarket. My daughter was three years old at the time, and we are doing some grocery shopping. And all of a sudden, I hear one of the girls that worked at the store saying, there's a dead man. There's a dead man on aisle five or whatever aisle it was. I really can't remember. Mm. And is there a doctor? Is there a doctor? You know, just she was in total panic. And um, I went over there and I kneeled down over him and I was guided to take my left hand and to put it in his right hand for um, calmness and to put my right hand on his forehead for energy and I was to repeat these words to him. You may not, you cannot leave us right now. Your family needs you. It's too close to Christmas. You must come back. And I kept saying it over and over and over again in the same type of tone. And in, I guess in about five minutes or so, all of a sudden I felt his change, his color change and his hand getting warm and he sat up and, and just as he sat up, paramedics came. I stood up and walked away as I heard, how did she do that? You know, but I was just sort of, uh, I don't know, pretty lightheaded type thing. Uh, I just walked away. 
<clears throat> so I, have, mean, I, I, where, I don't know. I don't know. Where do you think that happens. guidance came from? Hmm. Where do you think that guidance came from? That the instructions to put your one hand on in his I hand and the other on his from the um from the other side. I think mm-hmm. I was being probably used in a way, mm-hmm. you know, to help bring him back. Yeah, I don't. Now, have there been have there been other uh, instances where you had these uh, prophetic feelings or uh, for for forewarnings of things to come? Um. Well, I, I don't know. Like um, one time, Bob and I were um, sitting in our apartment, and I stood up and I pressed the buzzer, you know, to let somebody in. And I sat back down and goes, "What are you doing?" I said, "My sister's here." <laughs> and he says, "The buzzer didn't ring." I said, "Oh, you know, like, you know." <laughs> so I sit back down, and all of a sudden. My sister's at her door, and she goes, it was really weird. I was about to press the buzzer, and the buzzer pressed. And then, (laughs) (laughs) oh, he called me a witch for a while. Um, And then, um, and then another time in, when I was in a psychiatric hospital, um, there was this girl that our minds were really able to connect to one another, and I guess she knew it. And, um... I remember telling one of the therapists, she's going to choke me. She's going to choke me, you know. And, you know, of course, they're not going to believe it. No, 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 it's all in your head type thing. I go, no, she's going to choke me, you know. Well, sure enough, she ran up to me and grabbed me by the throat. Hmm. And then, um, and then, uh, like, another day or two, I said to him, she's going to try to trip me. She's going to try to trip me. No, 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 you know. Well, anyways, sure enough, she tried mm-hmm. to trip me. <laughs> and, um, well, anyways, what they did with her, they put her in some other institution for dangerous, uh, for dangerous minds, I guess. Um, uh, in or at least da- dangerous behavior at any rate. Yeah, um, anyway, that's like that. Tell us a little about now. You went to a neurologist because you were you were experiencing yeah, blackouts, was, um, and he wound months, up putting you in an institution. I, what, that tell was us about like, that. That was like eleven months after my accident. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like three months that I was able to actually comprehend. I was in an accident. That it was in a hospital. and All this stuff and everything that happened. Um, I left home. It, you know, I just didn't feel like I belonged there. And I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, actually. I, I was totally in la-la land, I guess. Um, mm. I, I took a job, and I, and I had that job for a while, and, and I started getting more and more little bits of my moral being, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt, I don't belong here, you know, but... But then it would last a minute, and I would continue doing what I was doing. And as the time, as times went by, more and more of my moral being would come, and and then I started having blackouts. I would just black out. 
so I went to a neurologist, and I told him that I feel like I'm being led around and being told what to do, and and um, that's all I remember telling him. I'm, I mean, there could have been more, um, but I remember that, and he says, we need to put you in a hospital, and if you don't go willingly, we'll have to commit you. Wow. So, yeah, so um, I think I went willingly, and my mom was real upset about that, I remember. You know, um, she says, you shouldn't have let him do that, you know, that or that. But, um, so, I was pumped with all kinds of drugs. It's like, they probably didn't know anything more than I knew, you know, about me. And, mm -hmm. um, well, I, I pretty much went into a catatonic state. I went, you know, there was a period I was totally mute. There was a period I was catatonic. Um, and, uh, God, I'm getting lost here. Um, and I had a friend that, uh, who's a psychologist now, and he says, you know, you don't need these drugs being pumped into you. He said, let me take you away from here. And I stayed with him for several weeks, and he took me to a doctor, a natural medicine naturopath type doctor and they um, he put me on like 16 different vitamins three three times a day well you know some was like several kelps and, and I remember the kelp but I don't remember mm -hmm. what the ones were um, and and within a couple of weeks I, I became human <laughs> you know, in a way. I was able to talk I was able to carry on conversations I was able to be a person um and I and I wouldn't take drugs since I wouldn't you know allow that stuff being put in me, and um, and I went I went through a period of uh, of moving from one place to another like eleven times in a year trying to find safety and and peace where I was and and but the only people I really knew were people from outpatient therapy. And everyone from the outpatient rehabilitation therapy were either alcoholics, drug addicts. So every time I moved, I was with another alcoholic or another drug addict. And and yet um, they wanted to put me in a halfway home. But yet, stubborn as I am, no, you know, I don't need a halfway home. I don't do drugs. I don't, you know, type thing. And um, so it took me a while to to find where I could live without drugs and without the alcohol and you know so I was running around a lot and um, and I, I found I found my way I found a love and you know we had a very good strong relationship for a couple of years and and it was sort of hard on me and it went sour and and um, so I left I left and I became a nanny and I stayed in Nanny for about nine months, and then I met Bob, who I'm with now. Yes. And I've been with him forever after. And you have two daughters? I have two daughters, yep. Yeah. Now, um, did, at what point did you start telling people about your near-death experience? Did you do it at any time when you were in the hospital, or did you... Tell the neurologists about it, or 
Um, I don't think I ever talked about it. I don't think um, that really ever came up. I was my I, I had such a psychic ability, you know. My you know I was able to pick up so much, you know, from one mind of somebody's and uh, and and I think that's what was talked about and and I wasn't totally there because I you know. I didn't have my childhood, so I didn't really know too much. Mm. Um, I talked to my um, family about what happened, you know, with that. And um, what was their reaction? Um, like, uh, well, let me see. She's, you know, she had a head injury. She was in an accident. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard for them to believe. My younger sister sort of, you know, believed it because she says, you know, right after the accident, I was talking about God and thanking God and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but it was like, I, I learned right off the bat, people don't get it, you know. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You, just you know, it's, you know, what's so interesting about, about your case is because you lost your childhood memories, the thing that we orient mm-hmm. to, you know, when we've been in an accident or something critical has happened, you know, we start recovering ourselves because we have these memories. We remember our relationships with our mother and, and you know, with our sisters and our siblings and so forth. But without right. that, about the only guidance you had was uh, your present situation, which must have been pretty painful, and your your NDE, which you had a good memory of because you saw God. I was very strong-willed, you know, like in the hospital. In my mind, kept saying, "You're not going to be. You're going to get well. You're going to live a normal life," you know. And I don't know was it me thinking that, or I was being told that from the other side. You know, I mm. couldn't tell you, but but I knew I knew I was going to have a normal life, and um. And I'm not a vegetable, and the doctors were wrong, and I didn't need drugs, the doctors were wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, they're not God, they just practice medicine, but doesn't make them right. You know, and do they really listen? Or do they really just prescribe because they think that's the thing to do, you know? They, um, they, they throw all kinds of drugs at a problem. Uh, I've yeah. seen it, you know, mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah. Uh, the... Um, you say that it's possible to feel lost and confused and still be able to love yourself, and I thought that was I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, tell us tell us because, about that. How how do you reconcile those those feelings? Oh, well, see, because who I am as a person in my soul, okay, through my heart, I love that person. I mean, she's she's been through a lot. But she was determined. She knows what love is. And I think, if you know, you can only love others if you can truly love yourself. You know? And and who I, what I stand for and who I am is all good. You know? Like, like for some reason, if I'm, if I'm in a situation that's not good, what I have to do to get over it, I have to go seek what I can do for somebody to make their life better. It's kind of weird, but that works for me. You know, I like to see putting a smile on someone's face. It's almost like I feel like 
I'm related to everybody. You know, they're all my brothers and sisters. All children are my children. You know, I mean, that's that's how I actually feel in a way. You know, like all babies have to call me auntie. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and they belong to me in a way that they, you know. They're in my heart. I want to take care of them. I want to raise them. I want to love them. Um, I don't want anything happen to them. I want to protect them. And, you know, I see so much, you know, stress in the world and, and weaknesses in the world and, and uh, debilitation in the world from from experiences that they had in life that they don't know what love is. They don't know how to give of themselves, you know, in a way through love. Um, I think there's so many blocks of walls and shields and, and things that keep them afraid out of fear, you know, out of hurt that, that they don't know how to put that shield down, you know. And I think I, I see I see what happened to me through learning that I I grew my own weaknesses that grew into a lot of hurt and a lot of pain from what I see. But but it's like, but what I want to do is try to change that for other people. Um, I want to be able to let them to heal. I, you know, it's like I want everybody to heal. I want I want everyone to be peace with inside. You know, um, I know I'm not you a know, miracle worker, but I wish I were. Um, <laughs> it sounds a little like you picked up some of the teachings that the disciples that you encountered mm. had learned from Jesus about caring for others and yes. you've become like a almost like a guardian angel to uh, you you've assumed that role in a way uh yes. and perhaps that was uh, all together derived from your near death experience most likely see i feel it's so important it's been such an important part of me to take care and help those when in need. And the work, because the world is just too stressed and people are lost. And I believe they really need to love and trust others. And they lost that. And without that, they're unable to move forward. You know, we live so much in our past that do, do they really know how to live in their now, you know? Yeah. Um, and you were forced to live in the now because you didn't have the memory of yeah. your past. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I see people get jealous. I see people feel threatened. And at the same time, I can only feel their pain. I can only feel hurt. But I don't know what jealousy feels like. Um, and I don't know what... I wish I did. I wish I knew how to get angry. You know, because something's you know, would irritate me, but yet I don't get angry. I feel hurt, and I wish there's something I can do to make them feel better. You know? Um, it's like, it's 
like a crazy situation for me. Um, I just, you know, I see the world breaking, you know, breaking bad and breaking fast, you know, in, in the 45 years of my afterlife. And, and I see, you know, it bothers me to see on money. This is one thing that gets to me. It bothers me to see on money. In God we trust. Because, to me, I don't see no importance in money if it's used in selfish ways for power and greed. I can only see money making me happy if I can use that money to make something happen. To make something Some, Something good happen. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, what really gets me is when I see on the news, people unable to get health care because they're not insured. Um, and to see the homeless and they're looked at as scum because they might have had, you know, you know, something tragic that happened to them that made them homeless. We all have a story. We all have chapters in our lives. You know, we all have have had misfortunes in our lives. But no. there are people too. They are a yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Sharon, I think we're out of time for today. I want to thank you so, so much for sharing your story with us and um, for telling us about your NDE and and the difficulties that memory loss from that accident could cause. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, let me tell the audience that if they'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows. Um, they should go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS and our upcoming conference in Orlando, Florida in July, check out that website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>